We're starting in Malachi 3, and if you've been tracking with us, you're going to notice that we're skipping over a second half of 2, and we're skipping over the first five verses of 3. And, and the second half of 2 deals with marriage and sexuality. And I want to wait on that section for two reasons. First, I think that our cultural controversies regarding not just marriage and divorce in society and in the church, which are controversial enough, but to add to that the issues concerning LGBTQ identity, gender fluidity, the laws that are either being passed or being presented to our Congress and in our states, they have such tremendous implications for you, for your children or your future children. They have such tremendous implications for the church and our witness in the world that I think that it requires that we spend more time than we normally would going through Malachi and these issues. So when we get to that section, we're going to we're going to excursus on that. We're going to spend an extra amount of time to, to talk about that, to talk about how to witness with love and respect, but also with courage and humility to a world and, and how to understand what God is saying and why he's saying what he's saying to us about these things. So that's why we're jumping over this section because we're going to take longer with it. And and the reason why we're, 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 we're coming to where we are today is because today's message actually concerns themes we've already been looking at themes of sacrifice, themes of reverence, uh, reverence for God and the corporate religious life of God's people. That is, themes about how we deal with the church and how we deal with the Lord in the church corporately as a community. And, and so specifically, we're dealing with the, the issue of tithes and offerings in the temple life of Israel. And obviously there's connections to us. These kinds of messages, they're messages that I don't know any pastors who love giving these kinds of messages, but um, Mike has been encouraging me for many months to, to, to bring a, a message on giving and money. And um, th they're in the scriptures. Money's a big deal in the scriptures and what we do with our money's a big deal. So to ignore these things is to not do uh, what I'm supposed to do as a pastor, uh, but but these things are gonna are gonna bring up the questions that that many of us have. Um, what is a tithe? Are, are we commanded to tithe like they did in Old Testament Israel? Um, and and spoiler alert, it's complicated. <laughs> um, are we called to give? If we're called to give, where are we called to give? Um, there aren't quick and easy one-line answers to these things. There's a, a beautiful wealth of information in the New Testament about how what's happened in the Old Testament corresponds and doesn't correspond to our lives now. There are connections and disconnections between what Israel did with the temple and the tithe and, and the poor and each other and what we do. Um, so I'm going to eventually try to answer those questions from Scripture, but that's not really where I'm going to go today. But Because before we get to those those technical, if I could say that word, answers of, of what do we do, where do we give, I, I want to spend some reflection on the deeper issues underneath the specifics of giving, issues of why we give and how from our heart posture we give, issues of God's trustworthiness or his lack of trustworthiness, issues of his graciousness, issues of the Holy Spirit's power to transform us so that we can have a firm foundation for any top response, any action that God wants us to take related to giving. So as opposed to running to what to give, I want to talk about why to give and how in what spirit do we give. So let's jump into the text, starting in verse 6, and I'll read through 12, and then we'll have Cameron pray for us. This is the word of the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned away from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. But you say, how shall we return? Would anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the entire nation of you. 
Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and put me to the test now in this, says the Lord of armies. If I do not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of your ground nor will the vine in the field prove fruitless to you, says the Lord of armies. All the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Cameron, brother, would you pray for us this morning? And you can come on over and use this mic again. Is it on? Yeah. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you first and foremost for allowing us to gather here in this place, Lord, and for being gracious to us, Father, and providing us all for a building and a pastor and a worship team and everything in this place to just come here and gather before you and to worship you, adore you to learn more about you and to experience, you know, this, this tiny glimpse of what seems like heaven, but is nothing compared to heaven, Lord. I just want to thank you for that, God. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work miraculously in ways that we can't understand through Albert today. And Lord, give us the ears to hear the truth today and give us the discernment to discern what is truthful versus what may be coming from Albert's heart versus your heart, God. I pray that your mouth, the words of your mouth would come out of Albert's mouth today, that you would use him as a vessel only, Lord, to, to proclaim your word and your truth and help us to receive it with a very open, receptive heart and implanted on our hearts and our minds, God, for the rest of the day, the rest of the week, Lord, the rest of our lives, God. And I just want to praise you for all that you've done and, and today, yesterday, and all of our lives, Lord. And I just pray for continual wisdom and knowledge and blessing on all of our lives, Lord, that we would know you more and more and that we would glorify you more and more each day for the wonderful, amazing God that you are. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. 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 So I'd like to go through this passage uh, a few verses at a time, and then at the end we'll we'll look at some application, uh, and then next time we're in Malachi we'll we'll continue with this theme and look more at the New Testament specifics. But remember again, today's on foundations, the whys, and in what spirit of giving. So first, verses six and seven, the Lord's grief and the Lord's commitment. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned away from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So here the Lord laments, grieves the waywardness of his people. He says, from the very beginning until now, you've been wayward of heart. This grieves him. And he longs for their return. Sometimes we can think of God as, as a stoic deity who stands far away and aloof from us, like a, a heavenly Spock. If you're familiar with Star Trek, Spock is the character with pointy ears who, who's very logical, very wise, but is not emotionally affected by anything. We can think of God that way as too majestic and powerful to be affected by us. This isn't God. This isn't the God of the scriptures. Just in these two passages, we see a God who longs to have mercy. We see a God who's full of compassion. We see a God whose love is higher than the heavens are above the earth, as he says. He's been with his people for centuries while they've been disobeying him. And he longs for their faithfulness to him. We see a God who watches and is affected by the hearts of his people. We see a God who's angered and grieved in his heart 
by the selfishness and cruelty and unfaithfulness of Israel. And, and it's true in this passage, we see God saying, Israel, you are marked by unfaithfulness. That is your identity with regard to me. Now, there were brief seasons of greater faith in the history of the nation. There were times when individuals showed remarkable faith. But God says here, what's mostly marked you, Israel, my people, is disobedience. But there's one thing that has kept them. And it's not them. It is the sovereign commitment of God. Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Because I don't change, you're not consumed. In Romans 11, Paul picks up the theme of this nation, of his brothers by the flesh. That is his physical, ethnic people, Israel. And with anguish, he laments their unbelief and their stubbornness. And then he says an astounding thing in in Romans 11, 28 through 29, he says this about these people who rejected Christ. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies on your account. That is re- related to the church. They're your enemies. But regarding election, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And we've said this before, the existence of the nation of ethnic Israel to this day is a miracle. It is a sociological miracle. Israel as a people should not exist. My understanding is that every people group dispersed from their land over human history has lost their ethnic and cultural identity within two generations to 200 years. But not the Jewish people. They're strange among all the the gone civilizations of the whole earth. Through thousands of years of dispersion, persecution, and wandering, they remain to this day. That is exactly what God said would happen. And this is because God made a commitment. We see this specifically in Jeremiah 31, 36, where God says, the only way that Israel will stop hard Israel The Israel that has rejected me for all their sins, the only way they will stop being a nation is if the sun and the moon fall and lose their order in the place where I've set them. He vows that Israel would always be a nation. And and on a day that's still coming, they will be a nation fully redeemed and reconciled back to God. And so in explaining Israel's very existence, God has nowhere to point but to his own faithfulness. You exist You're not consumed because I'm faithful, because I'm committed to you. That's why you're still here, because I don't change. And he even goes back to Jacob. Remember, we started all of Malachi with Jacob, his electing love in Jacob. He reminds them of his sovereign choice of Jacob and not Esau. Now, spiritually, in terms of your eternal salvation, not in terms of your status as an American. The same is true for why you are not consumed spiritually. The reason why you still believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the reason why you still care about him, why you woke this morning, whether you were fighting yourself or not, and and desire to come and hear his word and be with his people is because God does not change. Because God has made a commitment to you, sourced not in you, but in him. Sourced not in your performance, not in your love, but in his sovereign choice to love you. That's the only reason why you care about him, why you still fight the fight of faith. It's because God does not change. And all your ups and downs and and all your days of walking close with God and in the days where you feel far from him, moments where you please the Lord and moments where you grieve his heart, through it all, Jesus Christ remains faithful, faithful to you. Even now in this moment, what do we know Jesus is doing? 
He's interceding for you before the Father's right hand. So brothers and sisters, let's keep seeking him. Let's keep fighting the fight of faith. But let's do it taking heart in this. God does not change. That is why we are not going to be consumed spiritually. Because he is faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And for those who know Christ Jesus, what this means is the work he began in us, he will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. That means everything to me. Many times I've prayed. We were talking about this yesterday with, with Caleb or with Jacob and Cameron. Many times I've prayed, Lord, I don't want to be on that final day. One of the ones who hears from your lips. I never knew you. You were a preacher. You, you may have even done some healings. You had a lot of religious show, but I never knew you. I'm called to keep following God, but I can't keep myself. God has to keep me, even though I'm called to keep following him. And I'm so glad that my hope is not in myself ultimately. It's in him keeping me. What would I do without that hope? What would we do without that hope, brothers and sisters? So at the start, God reminds them, you're here because I'm committed to you. And then he says this, return to me and I will return to you. But you say, how shall we return? This is so key. Listen to this. Before God tells them how to return, he says, return to me. Don't, don't miss this. I, I know it sounds like I'm microscoping here. God does have a correction. He does have a specific issue. But first he tells them, return to me. He doesn't say return to right living first or return to moral excellence first. No, it's personal. It's always personal with God. Return to me. I want your hearts. This is so crucial to remember as we consider specific ways God is going to call them to repentance about their giving and their tithing, their finances. He's not after their tithes for their tithes sake. He's not after their money. He doesn't need their money. He's after them. He wants their hearts. And whenever and in whatever ways God calls you and I to obey, to be faithful in our walk with him, it's never simply because he wants to get something from you, some behavior or action apart from getting you. He wants you. He wants your heart. And so he says, return to me. And I will return to you. Pornography is awful. Greed is awful. They're awful in themselves. But the worst thing about them is they tear us from God. They tear us from loving him and from experiencing him. From treasuring him and glorifying him. It's personal with God. Sin is always personal. And getting back on the right road with him is always about him being returned to and, and him returning to us. And so he says, return to me. A wholehearted devotion and a steadfast love is what I seek from you. And he says, because that's what I offer to you. Think about this. The God of the universe. The God who made everything is saying, return to me. Because I want to be with you. I want to return. Like what an honor that we get to have the God of the universe want us. It's mind-blowing. And also what a sober call not to refuse him. And God opens his heart and he's grieved. He says, you're robbing me. And they say, how, how are we robbing? Would anyone rob God? Yet you're robbing me. In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the entire nation of you. So now he gets the specific issue at hand. These tithes and these offerings. God had made a covenant with his people. He had promised to be their people. And they had promised to be 
He had promised to be their God and they had promised to be his people. And, and that relationship had many expressions in the law. And one of the expressions was this tithe. Tithe is a Hebrew word for tenth. Not a surprise to most of you. And so God had commanded them in Leviticus 27 and many other places. But Leviticus 27, 30 to 32 is, is representative of this command. And I think we have it. Maybe we don't. Brando, do we have Leviticus? Okay, that's all right. So this is, this is a representative uh, explanation of the tithe that's in many places in Scripture. Leviticus 27, 30 to 32. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of herds and flocks, that is every tenth, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. So God says the grain, the wine, the honey, the fruit, the oil, even the livestock, a tenth, it's all to be given to the Lord. And, and a primary use of this tithe was to provide for the ministry, the Levitical priesthood. They did not inherit a portion of the land like the other tribes in Israel. They inherited a vocation, the priesthood, and they inherited the stewardship of the ministry of the temple and the sacrifices in Jerusalem. And so since they did not have farmland and their vocation was full-time ministry, it was the people's responsibility to support the livelihood of the Levites with a tenth of their income. And this might also have included providing for feasts, the festivals that all of Israel celebrated, providing for the poor, the needy, because they were commanded to give to them as well. And people have different understandings. Some scholars think, well, that was part of the, the tithe. Other people think they were separate tithes. Um, Thomas Schreiner, a really reliable scholar, thinks that if you put all the tithes together, it's going to amount to about 20% of their income. But in, in this case, it seems a tenth for the temple ministry is in view, as the Lord says. I, I, I want to cut to the chase on something because I don't feel like it's fair to leave this hanging out for you guys. And we'll talk much more about this next time. My understanding is that there is no 10% requirement in the New Testament. That's scary for some of us. It can be scary for pastors to tell their church that. But we're in a new covenant and a new testament. And giving is absolutely called for. But as we'll see next time, there's a difference between the covenant regulations in the Old Testament and the New Testament regulations of giving. Some of us may be called to give more than 10%. Some of us may be called to give less than 10%. Primarily, it's an issue between you and the Holy Spirit and what he works in your heart. And there's more to say about that than just that. But I wanted to cut to the chase on that. And next time I'll explain why I think that's what the Bible proclaims. But anyway, coming back to, to these people this time, God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Bring the whole thing. In, in other words, the implication is they're holding back from giving him all that they had committed to give him and all that they were commanded in the law of Moses, in the old covenant. And God says that this amounts to robbery, to stealing. He says, you are stealing from me. And surely that's an appropriate word for an issue of wealth. Like when someone says literally, I was robbed, like literally, I was robbed. We think in terms of property and money stolen. Figuratively, it means lots of things. MVP award was robbed, you know, this year. But you when know, we mean that word literally, it's, it's a monetary issue, right? And so God is referring to their wealth, to their possessions, when he says, I'm, I'm being robbed. That tenth was owed to me. But here's, here's what I think is really important today. If we think more deeply, I think we must see that they were robbing God of much more than a tithe of their produce and their animals. They're robbing God of the worship, the glory, and the credit that he deserves. They're robbing God of the worship he deserves. They're robbing God of the trust and the honor that he's due. And we can see this more clearly if we think about exactly the way God explains what he wants and what they're doing. He says in verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. 
We don't see it in English, but it doesn't say the Lord. It says Yahweh. God uses his divine name. He says, return to me, Yahweh. From the Hebrew verb to be, or I am. His name takes us back to Moses and the burning bush where God first gave his name to Moses. Moses says, who are you? God says, I am that I am. I am that I am. This is one of these names. This is one of these things that happens in the Bible that I just think it's just such evidence of the veracity of scripture and the truth of this God. Because if you understand what God is saying in, in human history and deities, this is, this, is, this is almost like too crude a word to use. This is brilliant, like this name. It's brilliant. Like the philosophical, theological depth of understanding implications of this name are huge. Like any philosopher from any culture in any century should hear that name and think, of course, that's what God's name should be. Of course, if there's a God of this universe, his name should be, I am that I am. Because this majestic, glorious name, I am that I am, it points to God as the uncaused cause of all things. It points to God as the source of all things who has no source outside of himself. Our names tell us where we come from and we all come from somewhere. Our last names tell us, I came from my dad. His last name tells us he came from his dad. But if you ask God where he came from, he just tells you about himself. If you ask God where he comes from, he says, I come from me. I have no source outside of myself. This is the beauty of I am because I am. God is the only uncaused cause. God creates all things. He sustains all things. He provides for all things. So in the context of these tithes, whatever Israel needed for livelihood, God is the source. And he also calls himself Yahweh of Shabaoth or Sabaoth, Yahweh of hosts. We've looked at this before. It's a, it's a reference to his heavenly might and his rulership over all things. He is the eternal, almighty, unstoppable power and authority. Whatever power and authority is needed to make sure Israel gets what they need, God has it. So when the Lord says, return to me, he means at least return to me in this way. Return to me as your almighty sustainer. Return to me as your unstoppable provider. Return to me as the inexhaustible source of all you need. But if he's saying, return to me, we should ask, where had they gone? They had gone to their possessions. They had gone to their wealth. The fact that they were withholding their tithe indicated that they were acknowledging their tithe. They were acknowledging their possessions and not Yahweh as their hope. They were clinging to their possessions, not Yahweh. They were clinging to their income, their crops, their produce, their livestock in their hearts. I don't mean it was wrong for them to have those things. They were commanded to keep 90, you know, 90 or however the majority of their possessions were to stay in their, their own hands, but their hearts belonged to their possessions. Their possessions and their wealth had become their source in their hearts. They had become their sustainer and where their dependence went. This is where their hope was. This is where their confidence was. Look, if, if you're out to sea and you've got a rickety boat and you know that ship might sink at any point and you've got two very different lifeboats in front of you on this giant boat, you've got to choose one, right? 
Like if, I, if this boat's going to start to sink, I got to make sure I know which lifeboat I'm going to grab. And they're very different. What are you going to choose? You're going to choose the one that looks safer. It looks surer. It looks stronger. It looks able to hold you up. And in the uncertainty of the ocean of this world, Israel looked at their two lifeboats, their possessions and their God. And there was no question which one they were choosing. They were choosing their possessions. That's what's going to hold us up. So that's why I can't give this away. And this is another way of saying their possessions were functioning as their God. Their possessions had the place of trust and hope and dependence that belonged only to God. And this is why I say they're not just robbing God of tithes, but of the worship he deserved as the true provider and sustainer. And now he was cursing the land because of it, cursing their produce, cursing their flocks. And this was, this was a, a merciful discipline because his discipline is intended to cause them to return to him. He's saying, I've got to help you recognize where your true hope lies and what you really need. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curse these blessings. But, but look at his wisdom and his mercy and trying to get them to see who he really is. He says, put me, remember who me is, the I am that I am. Put me to the test now in this, says the Lord of armies. And see if I do not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor will the vine of the field prove fruitless to you, says the Lord of armies. All the nations will call you blessed for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. This is so beautiful because it shows that God wants them to understand who he is. He's not interested in disciplining them just to, to, to exhaust his anger and get something off his chest. No, he, he's disciplining them because he's, he's their father and he wants what's good for them. So this is not some, if you give me wealth, I will give you wealth either. Like not only is God not just losing his temper and smacking his kid around, but he's also not saying, hey, use me like a slot machine. If you sow $1,000 to the Yahweh Miracle Hour ministry, Lord, forgive me for saying it like that. I, you know, fill in the blank. If you sow, sow $1,000 today, you'll reap 10000 tomorrow. So call that number on your screen. No, remember what this is all about. Return to me. And I will return to you. This is heart for heart. And so watch the wisdom and, and the intelligence of this. In other words, if you put your faith in who I say I am, the source of all sources for you, if you put your faith in the fact that I really am your real inexhaustible source and provider and sustainer, then you will see it. I will make you see that. I will show you. I will reward your faith by revealing that I really am the Yahweh of hosts. I will, I will flood your storehouses. I will use my authority to destroy the locusts in the desert heat. I will show you. If you will give me your faith, I will show you that I am your God. I am your hope. I am your true treasure, your real provider and your sustainer. That's what God is saying here. This is all about their relationship with him. So what does all this mean for us? I think there's, there's one big thing that I see to take away, and there's, and there's several big maybe to-dos about it. But the one big thing I think to take away from this today is to recognize that our attitude about our possessions, to recognize that not how much we have or how little we have, but our attitude about our possessions tells us about the condition of our hearts before God. Not necessarily whether we tithe or not, or that, that can be an indication. 
or, or how much we give rather, but, but our attitude about it all. One person might give, you know, 5% of their income to the poor and to the church and give it with hope and dependence on God. I believe another person might give 30% grudgingly and proudly. So I, I, before we get into the technicalities of how much, I, I, what I'm trying to say today is what's so key is our attitude about this. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. In Israel's case, they were showing through their hoarding and refusing God that money had their heart and not God. And you, it, it's one or the other for the Lord. Jesus goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. For he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Jesus is not saying you can't have money. He used money. His disciples had money. But, but he's saying, listen, your money and your possessions are either operating in your heart as a loving expression of my faithfulness, freeing you to enjoy and to share what I've provided, or they're operating in your heart as your real security and the arbiter, the determiner of your hope and controlling you and imprisoning you. In other words, money and possessions can say to our hearts on, on, on one hand either, God is faithful, he loves me, he provides for me, and he will provide for me. He is my hope and I can trust him. And I can be free. Or they can say, this money, this bank account is my true treasure. This is where I find my hope. This is where I find peace. This is what determines my present. And this is what determines my future. And I'm bound. And, and of course, we're in process. We all live somewhere in between these two extremes. But these are the two extremes. These are the two endpoints. This is the binary options that our hearts are either gravitating towards one or the other. Either putting our hope in God as the one to depend on to provide us with wealth or putting our hope in our wealth as the God we depend on. Hebrews 13, 5 to 7 elaborates on this in a wonderful way. Listen to this. Keep your lives free from the love of money. It does not say keep your lives free from money. It says keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Keep yourselves free from the love of money, not necessarily money. Because God has said, never will money leave you? No, never will I, the one who gives you what you need, leave you. Never will I, the one who sustains you, and all your needs leave you or forsake you. So to the degree that we're mired in seeing money is our hope. This love of money. Giving it this central place in our emotions and our affections. Putting our hope in it. Putting our hope in it to such a degree that we have a lot of joy and peace if we have a lot of money. Or we have a tremendous bondage to fear and despair if we don't have as much as we think we should have. To that extent, we should ask ourselves if money is taking a place reserved for God in our hearts. And justice for Israel, a crucial means of coming back to and exercising and immersing ourselves in the truth of who God was, 
or who God is, was to give money back to God, so to speak. And Jesus prescribes in Matthew Matthew 6, where we've been looking at him, a, a similar prescription that God is prescribing to Israel. He basically says, share, share. Out of your trust in God and your confidence that he is faithful, share what you have with others. And again, next week we'll move into the specifics of the objects of where we share as a new covenant people, because there are specifics in us. And as I said earlier, some of the specifics are very similar with Israel and some of them are different than what Israel's specifics were. But I I want us first to remember as we look at Israel, as we look at the failure of God's people, I want us to remember something here as we, we are actually getting ready to close. That we are not an old covenant people. We are not under the law of Moses. And what I don't mean is, hallelujah, we don't have to tithe. Although that may be true for some of us. It may be that God is not asking us for the same percentage that he was asking for Israel. But I I don't mean it like that. Because maybe for some of us, God is asking us to be more generous than he was asking Israel to be. My point is, we're a new covenant people. We're a people with new hearts. We're a people with a new spirit. That's what I mean. We're a people with the Holy Spirit of God, not only giving us external commands in his word, but living inside of us, giving us the will and the desire to obey those commands. Like, hallelujah. Whatever God calls you to do in this matter or in any matter, he's not standing over there waiting for you to get your act together. He is inside you to give you the power to do what Israel wasn't doing. Not just in money, but in anything. And so we need to remember first that Jesus Christ within us is capable of doing within us concerning with money or with anything what we could never do without him. So the first thing I want to call you to is hope. Because God is a sharer, because God is a giver, and therefore we can be too, because he gives and shares his heart with us so that it can look like his heart. He shares Jesus with us. He has put Jesus in us. He shares with us in the heart of Jesus a heart that does not worship money or power or sex or relatives, or jobs. He shares the heart that worships his father as he should because he shares with us a heart that doesn't put its hope in possessions or popularity or promotions, but puts its hope in his father because he shares with us his heart that loves God more than anything. This is who we have inside of us. The Holy Spirit, the Son of God. He lives in us to live through us, to give us the power to think and hope and want and live the way that we never could in our own strength. This is your inheritance, brothers and sisters. This is the new covenant. This is not the old covenant. Jesus himself living inside us, sharing his heart with us so that our heart can be like his. This is so crucial because this is how God receives glory. This is how God becomes the treasure of our heart. See, as a new covenant people, our hope cannot be in our ability to be better than the people of Malachi's time. Our hope cannot be in our generosity Our hope cannot be in our wise budgeting so that we have enough to share with the poor, with the church. Our hope has to be in Jesus Christ living inside of us, offered for us, empowering us to live as new as we really are. This is God's promise to us in the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will 
be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to my laws. Is that not the best possible news in the entire universe? In so many words, this is the news I saw on that August day in 1992 that changed my life forever. And I still see it, but boy, does it get foggy. Does it get dirty? Does my sin bully me and the old man tempt me to despair and accusation and seduction? But this is true. This is where we must stand and we must fight above all things to put our hope, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins and risen to live in us so that we can live new. So some final points of application. I have some suggestions for you this week before we get into the technicalities of giving in more specificity. Technicalities is an uglier word. I just mean more specific application. So here's some more big picture application. I encourage you to take some time between now and next time to confess any ways that you're aware of that you have moved from your hope from God and moved your heart to your money and your possessions. As you become aware of it, just tell God, just say, God, I feel this in my heart. Please forgive me of giving my possessions and my hope for wealth, whether I have it or I don't, central place in my affection above you. I want to love you more. This might show itself up, this moving our hearts into our possessions or our hope of possessions, money and wealth. This might show itself up in, in different ways. For some of us, it might, be, it might show itself up in, in just great controlling anxiety when our money is low. Or essentially saying, that is my power. That's my destiny and it's leaving. And so I have to freak out and I have to be worried all the time. Or it might show itself in a lack of giving and sharing when you actually wisely can. It might show up in not paying your taxes or various fees that you owe to the city or to the DMV when you actually can. That's disobedience. The Lord calls us to obey the authorities. That's how we obey him. Until the authorities command us to disobey Jesus, we obey Jesus by obeying the authorities. And he cares about that. So we could be tithing or giving to the church and to the poor, but robbing God because we're not paying our property taxes or we're not paying our whatever, our emissions. <laughs> because we're afraid not because we don't have what we need. If you don't have what you need, that happens. And that's why the church shares. I'm not talking about that. But, but it might come in the form of just a strong craving for more when you actually have enough. Or consistently overspending when you don't have that kind of ability. Like you don't have enough to be overspending. It might show up in resentment or jealousy at what others have that you don't. Even though God has provided for you, he's given you food and clothing and shelter, but you resent what others have. So brothers and sisters, we all go through these things. Whether we have not in our minds, not all we want and we resent it, or we have more than we ever thought and we just bathe in that. So I just, I want to ask you to ask God to show you and to trust that he will. Second, affirm to God in a meaningful way your thanksgiving for how he has provided for you all your life. Take another devotional moment. Perhaps take a morning to recall so many ways over the years he has fed you 
and clothed you and even at times satisfied you with desires fulfilled that surprised you. Acknowledge him as the one who has given you even the ability to earn. Don't let your heart be proud because you've done it yourself. You haven't done it yourself. The Lord your God gave you the mind you have and the arms you have and the strength you have. Everything comes from him. So thank him and praise him as your only creator, your only sustainer, and your loving provider. Third, affirm that all you have belongs to him. It's from him, through him, and to him are all things. Affirm that all you have belongs to him and that because he's trustworthy, because he loves you and wants your best, you want to do whatever he wants you to do with your wealth. By the way, this is really everything. <laughs> Not just your wealth, but this is where Malachi is. And that you want to do this because you want to rest in him. You want to glory in him as your only true provider. You want to enjoy him. Tell him you want to see him as the great I am. And cherish him and have the joy of cherishing him as your treasure. It is freedom. It is true life to cherish God as your greatest treasure. You, you can't enjoy life more than that. In fact, it's better than life. What David said in the Psalms is true. And you know it if you know Jesus Christ. Even if you know it imperfectly or, or not as much as you want to. But you know it's true. When David says your love is better than life. Lastly, affirm to him that he alone is your only hope to walk out these godly desires, to give him your all and ask him for his help. Tell him that indwelling sin is too hard for you to overcome, but it is not too hard for him to overcome in you. And joyfully thank him that whether you see it all the way you want to today or not, that he will deliver you that he will deliver you because he is the savior, not you, but that he will deliver you from every unbelief-fueled sin of greed or lust for more that, that your old man heart and Satan try to throw at you. Tell him with joy that no temptation will overcome you, but that he will not be faithful and provide a way out for you, that he will be faithful to provide a way out for you. This gives him the glory and the credit for being the savior and not you and your bootstraps. Because the yes answer to all these prayers is ours in the new covenant. So this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, we affirm the forgiveness of our sins. We celebrate the one who is made poor so that we will be made rich rich in him. We rejoice in the indwelling Christ of the new covenant who makes us new and shares all of himself with us so that we can walk in the deepest of friendships with him so that when he says, return to me, we can say, I will return to you. 